0: Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC, from breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look. The Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We've got a terrific Monday morning show for you today, including rising violent crime in Vancouver, police reporting a sharp spike. In violent robberies and shoplifting, the latest violent robbery in Vancouver. It happened at the Smoke and Food store on Smythe Street near Granville, ten o'clock in the morning. The surveillance video shocking here. Let's discuss now with my guest Armagan Tahir. Armagan is the owner of the Smoke and Food store on Smythe Street. Very pleased to welcome him. Armagan, thank you for coming on today
1: for liking me.
0: Okay, let's talk about what happened here. so tell t- lead me through this the the video of this is pretty shocking. I invite people to check it out online. Tell me what happened.
1: Uh, if you see the video, like it's actually a shocking incident happened and there's a day bright light, and no one can expect like' it's entertainment district of Vancouver one of the most busiest street in Vancouver. You can say it's day and night it stays busy yeah i've been there for last like 10 years it's, we don't have this kind of a risk like in our calculations but it was like knife robbery at nine forty a.m on a friday morning and that was like a severe kind of a violence on the um, my guy who was working there
0: yeah you had one guy so you were not there right your employee was there correct
1: no i wasn't there yeah
0: oh, okay tell me what tell me what happened you can describe what happened
1: uh, the two guys just like entered, as far as video I saw two guys entered uh, in the store. The knife was already out and they were just waving the knife to put on the stomach of my guy. And they just like ordered him to just obey them. And they just put him upside down on the floor. So one guy just like went towards the till. He just like got the cash. And the other guy, he just like went at the backside where the stock is. So he just like filled up his backpack and a duffel bag with all kind of the expensive merchandises, and they were pretty much organized you know like he, the guy who was just like filling his bags he left the bag on the floor and he left at the first place and the second guy he waited at least like 10 minutes so not the 10 minutes like 10 seconds or 15 seconds and then he left after that guy so they were pretty much planned like what they're doing so one guy left wow. on the right side, second left on the alley. And there was, if you see the cameras, the videos are out there for you. And you see, there was a third guy who was just, uh, you can say, it's, uh, it's a guy who was just keeping the eye outside. He just, like, when the guy who left the store with a knife, he went to the alley, and the alley guy come out and left towards the Seymour. So this is pretty much like oh. seeing
0: a movie something. you know, like, yeah. Uh,
1: so and there was like there was like a like there was like a lookout
0: there look a lookout man outside keep an eye out keeping an eye out right. outside. Okay, what's how yeah. do your how do your uh, tell me about your employee? This is obviously something that really sh- sh- uh, has shaken him up. How is he doing?
1: Uh, he's a strong guy, so of course, like it's shocking, man. I, I worked there for five years, like as a cashier when I the a first I can I wasn't with the incident but I still feel like I don't feel comfortable like going there anymore even you know, like I'm I'm there like from last three years, days now since this all happened. Yeah. Uh, so the guy happened to him like of course that, yeah he doesn't feel safe.
0: Right. Yeah, no, of yeah. course he doesn't feel safe. He's had a knife pointed at him here and this was uh, very violent forced him to lie down on the floor. Uh, ripped open took money out of the till and took a bunch of merchandise how much how much stock and cash did you lose there
1: the cash wasn't that much it's like five to six 550 somewhere but like the merchandise is about like 7k the seven thousand dollar merchandise they
0: took. It. seven seven thousand dollars what kind of stuff did they steal they just stole the vape products vape products yeah yeah, Vapri, yeah. is this uh, how many times have you been robbed down there? This is not the first time you've been robbed, right?
1: Before it wasn't the robberies that this kind of a robbery. not Like before, it was just a panic theft, like just a break in, panic theft. Somebody just like uh, took the one merchandise and went away. Like there was no weapon use or nothing. There was no use of force. But this kind of a robbery is not like in the. This is maybe in the Hastings areas. Common, it's not even common there. But it's entertainment district. No, the police is every corner. There's always a police car. Then, like maybe not even 200 meters away, in that area. But still, they have. I can say like what you can say about these. These kids are just like maybe 22, 23. You can see their gaddos. Like they are not old guys. You know, like yeah, the young people.
0: These are these are young people. They were wearing like surgical masks. It, I think they had hoodies on, right?
1: The hood is on. The glasses were on.
0: Even the gloves were on. The gloves. Okay. So this is difficult. I mean, you've got very clear surveillance video there. I've just been. I've just been emailing Armagan with the police this morning. Vancouver Police tell me they have no suspects. No. They have no. They have no arrests in the case. They are investigating. They are appealing for the public to come forward if they know anything. But you know, you take how a look. Gonna, at, how do you going to
1: arrest someone? Like it's it's been it's been. It's been three days i've been only contacted with one one time with the officer to obtain the video they got the video and they just like never ever just contact any of the person like on the granville street there's the cameras everywhere seymour street there's the cameras everywhere in the alley the other side there's the cameras everywhere police can not get the access on those cameras and see like of course they started from somewhere they came by the skytrain or something. something this is, like, it's not a panic theft robbery, so we cannot just let it go like this. It's a, it's some kind of, it's a assault, knife, weapon used in this robbery. So yeah. So take it seriously. Even 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 police should just like, they don't just, like, let it go just a file number, you know, because this incident happened, just collect the data. It, it shouldn't that, be treated as
0: like this. Is that what you think is ha- happening? Like, you're not satisfied with the police response, it sounds like?
1: Man, you just, like, mentioned, like, I have a service, uh, videos. Year because in last, I think, so, three months, it's been breaking attempts like four times. So I add on some of the more surveillance so I can just like get some claims. And one of the incident, I just gave the police all, the you know, the social media helped me. The There's a page for the Vancouver crime, Vancouver true crime. So they helped me to identify the people I just like pass on to the police and the police is they cannot do anything because there's no much, there's no more evidence. The okay, pictures of the in- yeah, it's a, I'm talking about the previous incident, yeah, so that's the reason I just add on some more cameras onto that. but still, like if they cannot get any evidence with all of these cameras on the streets, what else we can do?
0: Arm last question for you. you, like you've already you've already touched on this. would you it's getting worse in the neighborhood, correct? Was that what you would say it's getting worse?
1: It's getting worse. It's getting yeah. worse, 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 yeah.
0: Okay, I hope they catch these guys. Thank you for coming on to talk about it today. And I hope your employee is okay.
1: Okay,
0: thanks. You heard my conversation there with Armagenta here. He's the owner of the smoke and food shop on Smythe Street in Granville. A violent knife point robbery in the store on Friday morning. Police investigating is Check in with Howard Chow, Deputy Chief, Vancouver Police Department. Deputy Chief, thank you for coming on today. Good morning, Mike. What can you tell me about this incident?
2: Yeah, I can tell you that it's it's extremely frightening and alarming, you know, to store owners like that. I wish it, I could say that's the only time it, it happens or happens infrequently, and that's not the case. Uh, we've been seeing a spike in shopliftings as well as violent shoplifters uh, over the last year, year and a half. There's a number of measures that we've done, and I'll, and I'll give you just something that'll, uh, I, I'm sure, shock many of your listeners is that we just... Uh, completed on Friday uh, a large citywide project that specifically deals with violent shoplifters um, and shoplifters in, in general. And some of the numbers in there are, are staggering. Like we're, we're seeing one store in particular last year, one location, one store, have 1,500 incidents of shoplifting. Oh, well, 1,500. And so... Over the last 28 days, we've pulled a group of officers and all they've been doing exclusively, working with BIAs, working with uh, uh, LPOs, loss prevention officers, and and dealing with individual stores with these problems, uh, trying to get a handle on this. Uh, And we've got a a major press conference coming out on Thursday that's going to release some of the data, some of the success of this. Uh, and, And I think it's going to really spotlight the problem that we're seeing with violent shoplifters and shoplifting in general.
0: Okay, that's an unbelievable statistic there in one store, 1,500 incidents. Let me ask you about this particular in- investigation, early days here. You've got some pretty clear video images of two suspects here going to this store and threaten this threaten this young store worker with a knife and, and rip the place off. The problem is they're wearing hoodies and a mask, yeah. uh, surgical masks. Is that, is that, uh, what kind of difficulties that pose for police?
2: Well, it makes it challenging. Yeah. Um, and we've looked and we've pulled video in and around the area to try to, um, I try to find out if we, we get them before they actually covered up their faces. Okay. Uh, but but generally speaking, in cases like this, uh, over 65% of any serious assault, serious incidents like this, we're solving. We're figuring out who's doing it. We're charging. We're recommending charges. Uh, there's a large problem with underreporting. And when I talked about the, uh, the store with 1,500 shoplifting, they're telling us they're reporting about 50%. Quite honestly, we believe that number is, is significantly lower with stores across the city. So we just need people to report. We need witnesses to be good witnesses to stand by, call us, um, and uh, and give us as much detail. Stick around for the police, and in those cases, we're able to do our our job. Um, if if I can tell you just some other things, just to reassure the public yeah. on this, is that is that. Uh, um, We made it easier to report online. So we've pushed up from from 2000 or 2% to about 15, 16% of those files are actually getting reported from two years ago. We've got um, more beat officers, uh, officers on foot. We've created a Metro team, which is a, a team that goes where you're needed and it could be all levels. It doesn't have to be driving around waiting for that big call to come in. Calls where uh, we know that they 're under neighborhoods we know that they 're under siege with crime and and street disorder we 've got this team that will go there that 's ready to deal with those issues we 've got uh, our operation command center we started a year ago uh that is has the operational pulse so we can move people there. The hundred new officers will most definitely help uh seventy percent about seventy percent of them are are actually going to the front lines would you uh, projects? And projects like this that I've talked about just completed on Thursday, you're going to see how we've driven down uh, our, our uh, crimes for 45% in the last uh, uh, f- four weeks. Based what, would on you,
0: that. what would you say about the, the violent crime rate in the city over the last few years, especially when you compare pre-pandemic to what we're seeing right now. I just spoke to this shop owner who said, like, he's had he's had break-ins at his store before, he's had robberies before, but this is, like, next level. This is something different when two people come in, threaten a store owner with a knife and rip the place off. Like, how much has violent crime gone up? Is it going up?
2: It is. It has gone up uh, from uh, the last year to the previous year. And this is all of what our crime analysts, what all our experts have been telling us. Uh, research would say the same. Anything coming out of a pandemic like this, where we've been virtually locked down, you're going to see crime jump, and that's exactly what we predicted and uh, what's happening right now. So violent crime has gone up, so has property crime. But I don't even think that that's telling you the full picture, because post-COVID, we're having less people actually call the police and report these incidents.
0: Let me ask you about the situation with the, the tent encampments in the city. I, I know you have an update on there was a fire at a tent, is that right?
2: Yeah, there was there was a fire uh, last night, and I think our media people have put it out. But it was uh, 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 sent to us by fire that they were going going to deal with a working fire. They get there, uh, get the fire put out. Uh, believe to started with a propane or t- uh, by a propane tank. Is this on Hast- they-
0: Hastings Street? Is this in the right, Hastings right Street? Right in the middle
2: okay. of East Hastings. Okay. Uh, and then uh, they find a, a deceased person in the tent over. Oh. And this is and, and this is unrelated to the fire. Uh, and it appears that that deceased person has been there for some time. Uh, what that means, I don't know whether it's a, a day or a few days. That's still to be sorted out. So uh, that's, that's a huge concern, as we would all expect it to be. But these are some of the problems we've been talking about. We know that it's been going on for eight months. We know that it's been riddled with crime and street disorder. The city has done an amazing job in trying to carve off and hive off and get housing uh, for those that are there with the help of... Uh, Uh, With housing, But the the challenge is is that we've got the incorrigible group, despite what others may tell you, uh, despite the image that others are painting. We've got the difficult ones that just aren't leaving. Um, And uh, uh, they're the ones with stolen property in there. They're the ones with firearms and weapons that are committing an increased number of assaults. They're the ones selling drugs and the fire concerns. In the last uh, three days on the weekend, we've had three tent fires um, that we've been dealing with. So that is a concern. And, you know, until we get a handle on this, this is what's causing us angst, is that let's fast forward a month down the road when the weather starts getting better. Our prediction yeah. is that those tent numbers are gonna go up. So uh lots of work happening with the city and us and the province on this, <coughs> but it, it's it's something that, you know, I think the public ought to be aware of because okay. I know some are painting a different picture on that.
0: Deputy Chief, thank you for your time this morning. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right, let's talk about the latest troubles in the Canadian travel sector now. Flair Airlines, travelers on Flair Airlines in the weekends had their plans disrupted after four of the company's leased airplanes were seized in Toronto, Edmonton, and Waterloo, Ontario. The company described it as a a commercial dispute with a New York-based hedge fund. And they said taking the airplanes away from the airline was extreme and unusual. Some passengers not happy about it, say the least. Let's have a listen to this report from Nathaniel Dove here speaking to Flair passenger Sadie Vanier. Have a listen.
3: They said that they would not offer a hotel voucher because the flight was cancelled for our safety. Um... And so when that happens, they're not responsible to give us a voucher. Sadie Vanier was on her way to Palm Springs to see her family for March break. But on the same day, four of Flair's aircraft were seized, causing cancellations. A source telling Global News Flair was five days late on a million dollar payment to the plane lender. Vanier says they don't know if they'll get compensation.
0: Okay, the airline now saying they're scrambling to backfill some of these flights. They've got some uh, backup aircraft available, and they are trying to take care of their customers. Let's check in now. Duncan D., former chief operating officer at Air Canada, and I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Duncan, thanks a lot for coming on today.
3: Thanks for having me on, Mike.
0: Yeah, you bet. Thanks for doing it. It's not often we see a Canadian airline having their planes seized here by a hedge fund out of New York. What's going on here?
3: Well, I think that uh, one of the things can, uh, travelers need to be aware of is one of the easiest things in fact uh, for any creditor to seize from an airline that is um that is late in their payments is aircraft. You know, these are um assets that are distributed all over the world and uh, if for some reason uh, a creditor hasn't been uh paid what they're owed, one of their earliest and quickest resources uh, recourses is to seize aircraft, and that's what ha- what appears to have happened in this case, where Flair was late a few days with about a million dollars in debt. And so the uh, owners of the aircraft, the aircraft don't actually belong to Flair. They belong to these aircraft leasing companies. Uh, they basically said, look, we're taking our asset back because we can find other places that are willing to pay for them.
0: Right. Is this an indication of wider problems in the in the industry right now, or would you say this is sort of an isolated with this small operation here?
3: Look, I, I would um, venture to say that at this point, it doesn't appear to be anything that is at all widespread. It also doesn't even indicate that there's anything seriously wrong over at Flare. Um, so I think that uh, this is really just a one off, that we're seeing a situation that Flare uh, was unable to properly manage. Uh, now impacting uh, their customers
0: right this is an airline that's based in Edmonton and it wasn't that long ago that they announced some expansion plans here to expand the fleet to 30 aircraft by the end of this year serving 70 different routes so this is a company that has plans to get bigger Uh, this can't be very reassuring for their customers though what do you think
3: look i mean you know travelers know full well that uh, they're making um, in many many cases um, investments that are going to pay off for quite some time so you know you're making your travel decision let's say in september for your vacation in december so you're you're certainly uh, doing that with a hope and the faith that uh, when it, co- it comes time for you to travel that your flight will take off and so this is really coming to, um, at the worst possible time for For Flair, given the fact that we're in the middle of March break across the country, there will be uh, customers impacted, and they may choose not to ever fly with Flair again. So Flair will have a lot of work to do to reassure travelers.
0: Yeah, that's a great point about March break. It's a super busy travel period coming up here. Lots of people getting away on vacay here if their kids are out of school. So yeah, this is uh, difficult timing for for this company. Uh, How critical would you say the next few days will be for their business. Like we just heard in that global news report there with the reporter speaking to uh, one customer who had the flight canceled and they weren't even offered a hotel room. But it sounds like they're trying to make things better, better now. Like maybe some of the customers who were originally told me that we got no help for you. Now they're getting help. So how important is it for the, com- for this airline to make things right for their customers here?
3: It's absolutely critical, Mike. Um, you know, if you're a traveler and you are not able to be reprotected in a timely fashion and you're impacted by what has happened at Flair, uh, you are not going to ever book with them again. And you'll make okay. sure that your friends and family don't ever book with them. So, you know, what uh, Flair does in the next couple of days will be critical to ensure their long-term viability and survival.
0: How would the rest, how's the rest of the travel business doing in the airline sector right now? You mentioned we're in an extremely busy travel period here with March break, getting set to get going here. How is, how are Canada's airline sector doing right now? I mean, we continue to hear about, you know, there's problems here and there at airports here and there. What are you hearing?
3: Look, Mike, I, I, You know, one of the things, uh, this was exactly the time of year last year when uh, we started seeing problems in the uh, air sector that resulted in that summer travel season from hell that Canadians had to go through in 2022. And yeah. unfortunately, uh, what we saw in February, which is uh, the most complete recent month that we have statistics for, is not encouraging. Uh, Canadian airports uh, did not fare well uh, in comparison to their most com- uh, their nearest U.S. compare comparisons uh, in terms of on-time performance. For example, Vancouver Airport uh, saw somewhere in the vicinity of three and a half to four flights for every ten flights go late. So three yeah. out of three and a half to four flight, four out of every ten flights were delayed out of Vancouver Airport, but in Seattle you know, just a 35 minute flight away, they were seeing only one and a half flights out of every 10 flights delayed. So, you know, the record in Vancouver was that much worse was uh, in terms of on-time performance versus the airport in Seattle. So, you know, uh, we really need to pick up our game to make sure that for the upcoming busy summer travel season, that we don't see a repeat of what we saw last year.
0: What is the explanation for that? Like, why would there be that many flights delayed? At YVR.
3: Well, look, I think that uh, the, the most obvious explanation, but it's not the only explanation, is uh, the weather. You know, it seems yeah. like uh, we have a much tougher time in Canada, not only dealing with the weather, but recovering from the weather. So it's not even just the cancellations on the day of the weather event, uh, the snow or the, the precipitation. It's also the fact that we seem to have a difficult time recovering and getting things back on track after the weather passes. So that's something that we need to uh, have a serious look at in Canada in terms of the resources available, the infrastructure, the health of the infrastructure to make sure that we can get things back on track when weather events happen. I think travelers, especially in Vancouver are very understanding when, when there are delays caused by weather. But surely to goodness, you know, travelers should expect the airports and the airlines to be able to work together to get things back on track much more quickly after these weather, weather events uh, that happen although throughout the year yeah.
0: speaking to duncan d former chief operating officer of air canada we're talking about troubles in the travel sector Flair Edline airlines out of edmonton had four of their airplanes seized on the weekend by creditors out of new york they're scrambling now to make things good with their customers um, what do you think are the biggest challenges and problems right now in the sector and what do you think government should be doing about it to improve things like i continue to see there's pressure on the justin trudeau government on this file pierre Polyev, the conservative leader on the weekend putting out another video at an airport saying it talking about airport delays and this is situation normal under justin trudeau i mean do you think that's fair like can the government is the government can the government do something to make it better
3: Well, look. I mean, you know, the pieces that the government controls, unfortunately, has have been the reason why we've seen significant significant delays in the air travel sector in Canada over the last year. Last year, we saw, for example, shortages in staffing at security, causing those massive lineups at YVR security. Now they say things are better this year, but they've also revealed that they're short about 500 or so staff uh, year over year uh, between what they had before the pandemic and what they have. Uh, now. So, you know, when you're talking about the ability to plan to make sure that you have adequate staffing, doing that just before the summer peak is not the right time. They should be doing that well before and making sure that the staff are not just in place, but properly trained. Because, you know, anyone going through security knows full well that if you have a brand new security screener standing there unable to properly screen your bag what happens your bag gets pulled aside and they have to open it up and look at it manually so you know there has to be a much better way of ensuring that these agencies which canadians pay an arm uh, uh, you know a, a tremendous amount for um, that these agencies are properly staffed and properly prepared for the peak travel periods which they clearly are not All right,
0: welcome back as we continue talking about troubles in the travel sector there. Flair Airlines out of Edmonton. Yeah, they had a bad weekend there when a New York hedge fund started calling in their loan and seized four of their airplanes. 604-280-9898 is the number to call me. Star 9898 on your cell. Duncan D is my guest. Corey in Vancouver. Hi, Corey, go ahead. Hey, good morning, Mike.
4: You know, I worked for, uh, at the airport there with one of the ground handling companies, and one thing about the airlines is everything's contracted out, right? Okay. And, you know, so when you apply in these airlines, the training for some of these companies is really poor for some of these new hires. They're they just get a couple of days training thrown on the ramp. There, it's it's just a safety issue, but I it's it definitely causes a lot of delays itself, and missing bags, of course, and all the other various things that problematic at the airport, but. I, I really stress mm. that you know they, they really got to start training and your guests they saying that they got to start training guys now is definitely what they should be doing and they have the time they just it's chaotic they wait for the end last minute and they procrastinate and and then they try to figure so, out hey, this is why everything's delayed and everything's unsafe
0: but, so 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 what happened like you've got guys who are poorly trained to be baggage handlers and that's how that's how bags get lost is that what you're
4: saying uh, in some cases yeah yeah like, I mean okay. some of it could be attributed to the system. Some of it could be, there's various reasons, but there's a large number that that it could be happening. Delays because guys don't really know what
0: they're doing. Huh. I saw
4: it all the time. And the company's just pushing out guys, and the pay is horrible. So that's why you're not yeah. getting a lot of people there. So.
0: Corey, thank you for the call. That's very interesting, their story from uh, front lines there. Appreciate your call. John in North Vancouver. Hi, John. Go ahead.
5: Yeah, good uh, morning. Um, first, your comment about don't get off the plane if you're asked to get off. Um, disobeying the, the instructions of the flight crew is actual; it's a federal crime. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure you're. I'm sure you're you, right.
0: I'm sure you're right. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure if I had refused to get off the plane, I would have been in trouble. You're probably. If that right.
5: happens. Then yeah. the aircraft isn't departing, and yeah. now had a flight canceled.
0: Oh yeah, um, yeah. Staffing right.
5: is probably the single biggest issue. Yeah. Uh, in a lot of cases, it's because they need a security background check to work in the airport secure side. And right now that takes about four months to get processed from the government. It's supposed to take 10 days. So these people get hired, but they can't actually start work for four months. They're probably not being paid for the four months. And you wonder why people don't show up uh, for their first day of work or for training.
0: Don, thank you for the call. Duncan, is that that the case? It takes that long to get get working?
3: Absolutely. And, you know, I think the two callers that just called uh, really hit nails on the head. You know, in terms of the training side, let me just give one thing to listeners here. You know, the the airport codes, just the little tags, the bag tags that are placed on your bag with the airport code as to where you're going. You know, people have to memorize each and every one of those codes. So you know that YVR means Vancouver, but do you know that YQR means Regina, you know, and uh, what does YYT mean and what does YQM mean? So those things... Have to be trained. Th- those things have to be learned and people have yeah. to be properly trained. And then, in, in terms of the clearance that the government is taking to give people their security badges to work at the airport on the secure side of the airport, that has gone, as your caller suggested, from about 10 days to upwards of six to eight months today, wow. just like the passport delays. So, you know, it's taking that much longer to get uh, people working at the airport because okay. of delays caused by the government.
0: Squeeze in another call, Lindsay on the line in Vancouver. Hi, Lindsay, go ahead. Hey, how are you, Mike? I'm good. You got 30 seconds here.
5: Quick story: flying from Sakhalin Island, Russian Far East to Tokyo yeah. and from Tokyo to Vancouver. Okay. I get I get to Tokyo because of a barrel flot screwing up. I was uh, missing my plane to Vancouver by about 20 minutes. I stayed on a bench in Tokyo Airport Narita for about forty-eight hours. Oh no! And oh, no. a a security guard came to me,
0: yeah. tapped
5: me on the shoulder, and said he could help me. Put me in a five-star resort hotel in downtown Tokyo. Wow! I, until Air Canada finally got its whatever together and put me on another flight back to Vancouver. Not only did I get on the plane, they put me in first class.
0: Wow, that, I'm glad to hear that story had a bit of a twist ending there that I didn't expect. Lindsay, thank you for sharing it, and I'm glad things worked out for you on that flight. Duncan, thanks for coming on today. Thanks, Mike. Let's talk about decriminalization of drug possession in our province now. This is now the law of the land in British Columbia, 2.5 grams. That is the legal possession limit in our province now. So adults in B.C. allowed to possess that amount of hard drugs, including cocaine, heroin, fentanyl, crystal meth, and ecstasy Selling these drugs still not allowed. Trafficking is still illegal, but possession of 2.5 grams allowed. Why is the government doing this? The province and the federal government say they want to destigmatize drug use, eliminate the shame and stigma of addiction. And this will encourage more people to get help, to get treatment. I've got Jennifer Chandler standing by to discuss here. She's a long-time worker in the addictions field, victim services. Have a listen here first to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. We need to
4: make sure that, A, we're following science and data, and that's exactly what we're doing. There's been long calls to look at decriminalization. But you don't want to do it without the system and the supports in place and that's what we were really focused on with bc to make sure that it wasn't just flipping a switch and of course we've already heard uh, cities like toronto and edmonton interested in taking this on as well
0: okay let's discuss now with my guest jennifer chandler jennifer is a practitioner who has supported survivors of violence and people recovering from addiction for over 30 years in the system. So uh, it's great to get the perspective of someone on the front lines of this this crisis. Jennifer, thank you for coming on today.
6: Thank you so much for having me on your show.
0: You bet, thanks for doing it. Let me ask you first, a l- tell me a little bit about your work, like what kind of work you've done over your career.
6: So my education and work is centered around supporting um, clients who have experienced violence, abuse, addiction. I started with victim services uh, back in the mid-1980s, and um, then I later went on to study and become a certified career development practitioner, and I circled back again and focused on post-trauma care, so I eventually started my own consulting business.
0: Okay, it's great to speak to someone who's been in the system for the, for such a long length of time. Like, when you look back over your career, Jennifer, when it comes to drug addiction and all the problems that we're seeing associated with it, would you say that things have gotten wor- steadily worse over time? Was there ever a time in your career when things seemed to be improving?
6: Well, I think improvements we've seen in, in some of the science and the understanding of the effects of addiction um, certainly in some additional programs that have been put together, and in particular maybe in family support, where you know it's not as much of a family secret, um, so people are trying to access support. But if I look back on it, the devastating effects of like psychiatric deinstitutionalization and drug addiction in the 80s and 90s, we wow. saw an uptake in street drug addiction. We saw... You know, um, homelessness, crime, suicide calls, you know, resources that communities weren't prepared for it, uh, no access to counseling. So if I fast forward to now, you know, maybe I'm too far into this to see the major improvements, but my colleagues and I are dealing with those complex issues and even more aggressive behaviors. So is there a change? I don't know.
0: Okay, let me ask you your thoughts on decriminalization of drug possession here. Now, we heard from the Prime Minister there. Have a listen to Guy Felicella here, who's been a guest on past shows. And he says decriminalization, this is will remove the stigma of drug use and make things better. Have a listen. I'll get your thoughts.
2: This is a way to actually get people the ability to uh, get support. I actually think this could actually be the thing that removes the stigma that surrounds it so that people are uh, able to reach out.
0: Worked in the system for a long time. Do you think that will happen if you decriminalize possession of drugs? People will be more likely to reach out and get help?
6: No, I don't. In fact, you know, they say about decriminalization, but the police and community services, all of us uh, in various forms out there, have been providing options for care from the beginning. If you come in contact with somebody who is experiencing addiction or who wants to help, those things were already there. We often had referrals from police or victim services or other community or school agencies. So that thought that that's going to be something different, I don't understand. And, um, you know, as far as the um, shame or uh, reducing the shame that they talk about in stigma, well, The shame isn't going to disappear by offering more drugs, because the act itself produces a sense of shame. And um, a lot of my work comes around providing support for people who have the shame attributed to what they've done and what they've said over the course of drug addiction. And there's no getting around that. And stigma occurs as a byproduct of what happens in the absence of real change.
0: Yeah, because I've been struggling to kind of sort of square this circle myself here and figure, okay, if we reduce stigma, people will be more likely to come forward and get help, admit they've got a problem. Like, you know, we often hear, I've talked to the minister responsible about people who are using, using drugs alone. Like maybe they're keeping it secret. Maybe their own family or their spouse doesn't even know they're using drugs because they're ashamed. Mm-hmm. If you, if you, uh, Decriminalize possession, then they'll be more likely to admit they have a, a problem. Mm. You know, do you, have you ever see any evidence of that?
6: No, I don't. They, they already see it as a problem. They already are in, entrenched in shame. They're already experiencing all of those things, and it didn't. It didn't have them feel like they could reach out, even yeah. even with with us here. You know, with, knowing that we are here. You know, the problem is is that we attribute a lot of this, this talk to, to the words safe and harm reduction, as if we're reducing something. The, you know, there's no such thing as safe drugs. That's sanitizing this. And any of, and I want to speak today, not just in my opinion, but I'm, I'm gathering the voices of my clients and my colleagues when we spoke about this over the years. There's no such thing. It will never be safe. Drugs distort everything. They're crippling the body. They're damaging the brain. People are in financial ruin. It doesn't heal their trauma, whether you use a supposed safe drug or an illicit drug. And they speak about losing their jobs, their home, the custody of their children. So it doesn't make you feel good about yourself taking a drug. And it doesn't improve your relationships with your partners, your community, your friends. It's it's an existence in which you will still see people die around you.
0: Speaking of Jennifer Chandler, Jennifer is a longtime victim services and addictions worker in our province, 30 years over a long, a long career. Uh, Jennifer, we, we heard in that clip we played from Prime Minister Justin Trudeau there that they did not go down this path of decriminalization lightly; They wanted to make sure that there were supports in place for people i 'm wondering you know from your perspective in the system, what about those supports, like detox programs, treatment programs, recovery beds? What is it like out there like if people are looking for help, is help available
6: i always I always find that 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 funny when they say that there's some help available. But yeah. the need is too great. And the time that's ticking usually means that the families or the individuals don't get what they need right away. So to reach out in terms of detox uh, and access to treatment, they're waiting for treatment beds. Right. They can't, they can't find, find a place to live and work after their recovery. Um, the relapse is there because while they're trying to find a bed or while they're trying to get in depth counseling, months have gone by, a year has gone by.
0: Yeah. Now, what do you think would be a better way forward? I mean, we've talked about decriminalization of possession, safe supply of drugs. What do you think would be a better way forward? Do you think they should drastically increase the treatment options and resources?
6: absolutely
0: yeah
6: they need to they need to take a look at it, it, putting the funding into that into the treatment options into the bed and into counseling we we have to look at the programs that are currently existing that have existed for years and yet we're still seeing the same problems um are we doing a good enough job of, of looking at that and auditing these programs that are supposedly helping mm. in, in our communities and, and also to recognize that the, besides the fact that there's a lot of failures on this, there's just a lot of mismanagement of funds. So we need to build those top-notch treatment centers that can offer outpatient and inpatient care and, and have the, the, the system follow the client so that if someone ends up in a, some sort of psychosis and is in hospital for the sixth time, yeah. that, that that information is there, the care providers, the hospitals, that, that it's integrated in some way.
0: Right. Uh, I, think that's a, I think that's a really interesting point you just made about the potential for auditing and reviewing the programs that we have. Like, Do you think some of these programs, there's resources being wasted, they could be run better?
6: Absolutely, I I can come out, uh, <laughs> I guess, and say that I've seen it from the inside, and in, and in, and I've seen multiple organizations that I've contracted with over the years. And let me say that the people there are working very hard. There's a lot of there's there's skilled people working there. There's people who are compassionate, but the fact of the matter is, is it isn't always working effectively. And there are certain organizations that are obtaining these contracts and donor support, and we still have the same problems. And they employ good-hearted people, but some of them have lived experience but not a lot of um, experience or education around the kinds of complex behaviors and needs for their clients. So, you know, a compassion can only get us so far. So we need the system to get in there and take a look at the stuff they're sweeping under the rug because they don't want the funders to know Mm. what's happening on the inside.
0: Jennifer, thank you for all your service in the system and helping people over a very long career. It's really interesting to hear your perspective on these issues, and I appreciate your time today. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. All right. Well, you heard my discussion there with the social worker Jennifer Chandler and her concerns around decriminalization of drug possession in B.C. Now, they've done the same thing in Portland, Oregon. It's about two years ago, the decriminalized hard drug possession there. How did it work out there? Let's discuss now with my guest, Paul Watts. Paul is the owner of Graffiti Removal Services in Portland, Oregon. Very pleased to welcome him. Hey, Paul, thanks for coming on. Hey, Mike, appreciate it, man. Thank you. You bet. Thanks for doing it. I know a lot of your work in the graffiti removal business. I guess you're very busy down there in Portland. You work mostly down, you work a lot downtown?
7: Yeah, our main focus is downtown. We have a lot of cleanups and everything we, uh, we do downtown. So all my guys are downtown uh, consistently all over the city of Portland.
0: Okay, so you've seen things up close there in the city with some of the problems there. How would you say decriminalization of drug possession in Portland has, has changed things there in your city, make things better or worse, would you say?
7: So, I, you know, I grew up in Oregon. Um, we'd come to Portland from, from, up from Medford and, you know, family trips and everything else. And, you know, first off, you know, Portland's, Portland's beautiful, love it. But with the decriminalization of everything, it's, just, it's making everything a thousand times worse out here. And I don't mean worse just by, you know, uh, trash on the street, uh, more, more homeless on the streets, uh, more sex trafficking, more car burglars, uh, breaking into cars, um, more catalytic converters being stolen. I mean, when you when Canada, you know, did this, I'm, I'm sure people's hearts were in the right places. But come on, people, look, you know, look a little further and look what other cities have done and tried. And it's just it's just not turned out well.
0: Okay, so the idea in Portland is is similar to what we're trying here, that if we decriminalize drug possession, it will it will encourage more people to get help, to get treatment. Let me play a clip here for you from Dr. Todd Courthouse here and get your thoughts and then I'll get your thoughts here. Here's what he has to say about the uh, what they're doing in Portland. We got it ticket people who use drugs and have them call a treatment hotline has not worked. Of over 3,000 tickets issued as of the end of this summer, the hotline received 137 calls for treatment. Only 1% of those issued a ticket for drug possession requested information about treatment resources. Okay, so 1%. So the idea is if you're caught with drugs, you're written a, a ticket with a phone number to call to get help, but only 1% of people are getting help. What do you think of that, Paul?
7: Well, it's, it's a joke. I mean, it's, it's, okay, look at it this way: so you see somebody on the street smoking crack or shooting up heroin on the street, and somebody's going to go up and actually have a, a, a conversation with them and say, "Hey, if you want treatment, you know, here's here's a number." That person is high already. I mean, yeah. do you think he's really going to take? Do you really think he's going to take that ticket and go, "Yeah, hey, you know what? Since I'm high right now and feeling really good, I'm going to call in and I think I'm going to get treatment." No, he's going to go out and he's going to get more high. I mean, it's 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 ridiculous. I mean, the the science behind it, there's no science behind it. It's an it's an addiction. When you opened up the addiction to having cheaper drugs, more people on the street, people are coming into Portland from other states because it's easier to peddle the drugs and and peddle the sex trafficking. And when you decriminalize drugs, you decriminalize everything else.
0: Hey, Paul, we just got one minute left here. So here we are in British Columbia, early days of decriminalization of possession. You guys have had it for two years. What would be your message to people here? Don't you a mistake? We're making a mistake?
7: Everybody call Trudeau. Tell him to reverse that as fast as you can because the people up, you know, we love you guys up north. But Mm -hmm. we want to come up there and visit and not have to worry about walking over needles, walking over, you know, feces in the streets. And, you know, and actually have some sense of security up there because you have a beautiful plate. But, you know, reverse that course as fast as possible.
0: Paul, thank you for coming on today with your thoughts on it. I appreciate it. All right, sir. Thank you